0: We are exploring together the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which I'm coming to understand in new ways, is not just for non-believers to help them to become saved, but is for believers to help us become sanctified. And uh, there's some new things I'm learning, and I'm just totally thrilled and excited You know, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a diamond, a gem of incalculable value with many beautiful and breathtaking facets. And so in this series, we are attempting in a a meager way, really, to take the diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold it up to the light and admire it and cherish it and understand it and treasure it and absorb it, and internalize it, and magnify God for it. Amen? This is what we're seeking to do in this series. And, you know, someone asked me uh, during the week, they said, you know, the message last week, I really liked it, and I learned a lot, and I'm starting to think more about the gospel, but I'm wanting to know how to share it with others. Are we going to get there? And I said, be patient, we're going to get there. But first, before we talk about articulating the gospel and sharing it with others, Let's, let's make sure we understand what it is, the true gospel, and make sure that what we're sharing with people is actually the gospel of Jesus Christ and not some derivative of it or some watered-down version of it. Let's dive in deep and embrace and internalize this gospel first. And we'll get there. So uh, I just encourage them, be patient, be patient. The word gospel, as we saw last weekend, means good news. And it is good news, indeed, to those who have been enlightened by the Spirit of God to clearly see it in all of its splendid beauty. Last weekend, we took our first look at the Gospel Diamond, and we looked at five facets just by way of review. And these are listed there on your notes if you want to pull that out from your bulletin, your worship folder there. But last weekend, we saw that the Gospel was God's idea something that God invented. It originated with him. We saw that it's a plan for reconciling sinful mankind with a holy creator God. The gospel is a plan for reconciliation. We noted that the gospel is primarily about a person whose name is Jesus. Jesus. That's right. The plan is a person sent to this planet as a savior king to bear the sins of the world. We noted that Although the gospel has many wonderful benefits to us, for which we praise God, that it is primarily and ultimately for the glory of God. That God crafted this marvelous plan that brings him glory ultimately. That's the end game, the end of the gospel, is to make God look glorious. And then finally we noted that the gospel message has a focal point, and that focal point is a cross. A blood-stained, rough-hewn, Roman instrument of execution, a cross. And that there on that cross, righteousness and peace kissed each other. Mercy and justice met, and mercy prevailed at the cross. And so we wear crosses, and we put crosses in our church buildings, and we put them as symbols on the back of our vehicles sometimes, because we realize that the, the cross stands at the fulcrum of human history. And so much was accomplished there. Now, we don't worship a cross. We worship the Savior who hung on the cross. But we realize there's a symbol that has been given to us that represents the gospel. And so that's what we saw last week. And we're going to take a good long gaze today at the gospel diamond. And we're going to see even more of its beauty. One of the most profound explanations of the gospel in the entire Bible is found in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And I realized this week, you can't do a series on the gospel and not talk about Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's the most profound explanation there is of the gospel. So we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture today. Okay. Hopefully you have a Bible. If you need one, you can just jump up and grab one from the rack in the back there. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter 1. The words contained in these three chapters have convicted and amazed and angered and enlightened and humbled and transformed men and women for centuries. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about the gospel and specifically our need, the need of humankind for the gospel. Romans 1, 2, and 3 help us understand why the good news is so good. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and I love the way he starts out in Romans chapter 1. He begins his letter to the believers there in Rome, back in the first century, this way. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul believed that he was on a divine commission... From God to proclaim and declare, and yes, when necessary, defend this gospel message, which was the core of his message as he traveled around and spoke to thousands and thousands of people, he said, "I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified the gospel and in this first section of this letter, Paul takes on the, the role of a courtroom attorney, and he begins to build a case, a case for why all of humanity desperately needs the gospel. And he lays this case out for the believers there living in Rome at the time, back in the first century, and also for us. And the way he constructs this case, it's it's marvelous, really. It's, It's like a sandwich. It's a gospel sandwich, okay? He starts and ends with the good news, but sandwiched in between is the bad news. So good news, bad news, good news. That's how he lays out his argument, his case, really a case against mankind. And so we're going to look beginning in chapter 1 and verse 16, which just so happens to be our memory verse from last weekend. And uh, several of you have commented that you like having a verse each week to memorize and repeat. And so let's read aloud together. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, okay? Here we go. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, if you have a pen, take your pen and circle that word righteousness that you see there in verse 17. We're going to come back to that notion, that concept again and again. We'll explain it. The first thing that Paul says is this. You all need to know that I, Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel. And by inference, I I, I kind of get the sense that he's saying maybe some of you are, but I'm not. Paul proclaimed the gospel boldly wherever he went, even though people made fun of him, even though people mocked him, even though people told him he was a fool, got angry with him, beat him, and even tried to kill him for saying what he said. Despite all that opposition, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I boldly proclaim it. And I think inherent in what he's saying is this understanding that the gospel has some offensiveness in it to human beings. If it didn't, then why would people be speaking out against Paul? Why would the persecution have taken place if there wasn't an offensiveness, at least a part of the gospel that has an offensiveness to it? And I think we need to understand as 21st century believers that if the gospel we speak, if the gospel we preach doesn't have any offensiveness to it, doesn't offend anybody, it might not be the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And he gives three reasons. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is powerful enough to save people. It's the power of God for salvation. Power. And the word power here is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite of God to save people. It is powerful. It smashes down barriers, and the main barrier of sin between a holy God and sinful mankind. And Paul saw the power of God, the the dino power of God and the gospel again and again as he proclaimed it throughout Asia Minor and saw people converted to Christianity and walls of pride and sin smashed and exploded by the power of the gospel. He saw it over and over again. So he wasn't ashamed to proclaim it. The gospel is powerful enough to save people, he says. That's why I'm not ashamed of it. Secondly, The gospel is effective for all who believe, he says. All who believe. Aren't you glad of that? The gospel embraced saves every single person who believes it and every kind of person. He talks about Gentile and Jew. Prodigal and older brother. Man, you know, male and female, young and old, black and white. The gospel is effective for all, for everyone who believes it. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message. It is powerful and it is effective. And third, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel, a way to obtain righteousness is revealed. And I ask you to circle that word earlier. And the idea that in this context, righteousness simply means A right standing with God. How can I be right with God? How can I be accepted and acceptable to God? That's what righteousness is. When you have righteousness, you have a right standing with your creator. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reveals God's only way for being right with him. The only way. And that way is faith. Faith. That's what he says. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, he says. I think that means from way back at the beginning, the the saints of, of bygone eras in the Old Testament days, Abraham and Moses, they were saved by faith, yes. And today, in the 21st century, people still are saved by faith. It is a righteousness, a right standing that is obtained through faith. Through faith. And that's always been God's way for obtaining righteousness. So that's what the gospel declares. And that's why Paul is so bold and unashamed in proclaiming it. Because it's powerful, effective, and it reveals God's way for obtaining righteousness. And then Paul launches into a lengthy explanation of the bad news. So he's talked a little bit about the good news. He apparently wanted his readers, his audience, and us to understand how good the good news really is by helping us come to comprehend the bad news, the bad news, the inconvenient truths related to us as humans and where humanity stands with our Creator. Augustine wrote this many years ago, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, It is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You see, the good news won't seem that good until you are first able to comprehend the bad news. I think that's what Paul was trying to get across. And so we must understand as human beings the bad news that mankind... In general, globally, is in desperate straits when it comes to our collective standing before our creator. And so Paul is going to shoot straight with us. More and more these days as I talk with people, especially people in the younger generation, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, they just want us to shoot straight. Just give me the truth. Now, people in my generation, and I know this is a gross generalization, but sometimes baby boomers like me, we want it the way we want it, you know? Tell me what I want to hear. Sugarcoat it a little bit. But I'm finding more and more younger people are saying, give it to us straight. We may not like you. We may never come back. But we want to hear the truth. Tell us, what does the Bible say? Paul was a straight shooter. And so... He begins to build this case, as I said, like a courtroom attorney that shows the desperate condition of mankind. Here's the bad news, at least it seems bad from our human perspective. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God, there's a popular concept for you, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Point number one of Paul's argument, the case that he's making here, God's wrath is real and active. God's wrath in our world is real and active. God is, he would say, righteously angry with godless wicked people who suppress the truth about him. They hold it down, they push it down. They don't want to bring it up and look at it. They suppress the truth about God. And his wrath is actively being revealed in ways that are playing out in human history. I think what he's saying is some of the things that you see and, and hear going on all around you in the world are actually the outworking of the wrath of God in society, in culture. His wrath is real and active. Verse 19, here's why God's wrath is being revealed. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, or literally for through the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made, literally from the maidenness of things. So that men are without excuse point number two in paul's case now the creator of us all holds mankind accountable for knowing him and here's what he's saying god has left his fingerprints everywhere the creator has left his fingerprints everywhere in nature in creation And we, as his created beings, are responsible for seeking after God because of the witness of God in creation. I find it especially intriguing that he says, because of the madeness of things, things look made. The way I like to say it is like this. If you take out a cell phone, or in my case an iPhone, and you look at it, and you see how it works... No one would look at a cell phone and say, oh, my, look what time and chance produced. No one would say that. Why? Because a cell phone has the appearance of being made. Someone made it. In this case, a very smart man out on the West Coast named Steve Jobs. And I look at the cell phone and I say, my, my, there is a designer who put this thing together. And Paul is saying, when you look at creation, when you look at the world, when you look at the sun and the stars and the clouds and the sky and the oceans and nature and trees, when you look at the human body, don't they appear to be made? No one should look at what has you know, what they see in creation in nature and say, my, my, look what time and chance have produced. He would say, that's foolish. The madness of things leaves evidence of a maker. And in his argument, he's saying mankind is responsible because of the witness of creation to seek out the maker. Who is it? Who is it? Theologians call the witness of creation or nature. They call it general revelation. This is the general revelation of God. And, and general revelation is not sufficient to save anybody. It's not the gospel, but it is sufficient to condemn mankind. He says, men are without excuse. God holds mankind accountable for knowing him. Number three, mankind continually, foolishly fails to glorify God as God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, and the idea there is they knew about God because of creation, some people deduced there must be a maker, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Despite having clear evidence of God's power and his might from creation, first century people failed to glorify God as God. And aren't you glad that that was just relegated to the first century, those Romans back then? Uh, The truth is it's as true of us, isn't it, in the 21st century? Fail to glorify God. By the way, the core, the root, the cause of all sin is the failure of created things to glorify their creator. That's the cause of it all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally, miss fall short, sin means to miss the mark. All of us have missed the mark of glorifying God. That's what it's saying. God created us. He's left his fingerprints everywhere. We should seek after him and find out who he is and glorify him for who he is. But people across the centuries collectively have not done that. We fail to glorify God. So Paul continues his case in verse 22. Although they claim to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Number four, mankind continually, foolishly worships idols instead of the true eternal God. And I started thinking about all the things that people have worshipped since Adam and Eve. They've worshipped golden calves, the sun, moon, stars, People have worshipped idols with funny names like Baal and Marduk and others. Thought about the Greek and the Roman fabricated gods who were more like superstar humans with their own frailties and weaknesses and hang ups. Humans across the centuries have worshipped knowledge, enlightenment, money, pleasure, success, fame, possessions, cars, houses, sports, celebrities, entertainment. People have worshipped other humans. We've worshipped ourselves, people worship Mother Earth, religion, church, ministry. I sense in our culture today that many people worship the false gods of freedom, prosperity, the American dream. And billions of people all over the globe bow down and worship false gods who are not Jesus Christ. And all of it is idolatry, all of it. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, substitutes, physical and mental images, inaccurate images of the one true God even, and worship those. And so this is bad news, is it not? This is God's assessment of humankind in totality. It's bad, but it gets worse. The fifth part of his case God's righteous wrath is revealed through the removal of his restraining grace. God's righteous wrath is revealed through the removal of his restraining grace. Verse 24 of chapter 1. Therefore, it means because of all that sin and rebellion and the failure to glorify God and the worship of of false gods and idols. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity... For the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The lie is that other things are more worthy of our worship than God than the creator. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Amen. Because of this, this is where it gets PG-13. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I'm so glad that was just only relegated to back in the first century. Verse 28, furthermore... Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not ought to be done. Do you see that there's a kind of abandonment that's being described here? God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over, it says, three times. Because they failed to glorify God as God, God gave mankind over to sinful desires, degradation of their bodies, shameful lusts, and depraved minds. And in this giving over, this abandoning, it's as if God is removing some restraints. It's like there was something in place, like a, like a dam, holding back the torrent of sin. And because of the wrath of God, he removes the dam, and the torrent of sin floods the culture. And people become exceedingly sinful. Commentators talk about what those restraints were. Certainly there's a restraint of human government. That brings some restraint to evil and sin. There's the restraint of the Holy Spirit. There's the restraint of human conscience. But in his wrath, his holy righteous wrath against sin and rebellion, God progressively removes those things. And sin floods the land and sin becomes exceedingly sinful. It's almost as if God is saying, look, you, you don't want me. You don't want to glorify me you don't want to acknowledge me and my glory for who I am, then I will let you run your course apart from me, and it's pretty ugly. You know, in our culture, the open embrace and celebration of the homosexual lifestyle in our culture, that's viewed as a virtue, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we must really be progressing as a culture, as a society, now that we openly accept this lifestyle and and celebrate it. We must... We must be really advanced now because we finally cast off all those archaic, Victorian, puritanical sexual restraints. Paul looked at it differently. Paul saw it as evidence of the righteous wrath of God being poured out on a culture, on a society. He saw it as God abandoning that culture by removing the divine restraints on our sin, resulting in people abandoning natural relations For unnatural ones. Paul's a straight shooter. He's not done. Sixth point in his case that he's building. Mankind knowingly and willingly engages in all kinds of sins now. Against God, self, and others. Verse 29. They... Talking about humanity in general. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. How would you like that on your resume? Say, get more specific, Paul. Okay. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, which is the desire to hurt people. They are gossips. Don't you wish you'd left that one out? Slanderers, tearing other people down behind their back. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, there's something in their conscience that says this is wrong. They not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Basically, he's describing a culture in which people are constantly inventing new ways of sinning and then celebrating that shamelessly. This week, I listened to a sermon by a pastor on this passage, and he titled it, What's Wrong with America? (laughs) Because as he walked through this passage, it seemed to him that this was not just a description of first century Rome. This is a description of 21st century Western culture. Not a pretty picture. This is God's assessment of the, of the world. And in Paul's mind, I think that the Gentile world in particular. But we've got to get this too. I think Paul knew that some people would read that description and they would hear that description and they would stand off to the side with their arms crossed and go, Yeah, those dirty, rotten sinners, they, they ought to stop that, they ought to behave. And so he continues in chapter 2 and verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. uh Uh-oh. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Maybe not outwardly in your actions, but inwardly in your heart. You fail to glorify God too. You're in rebellion also. Verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, you're not God, pass judgment on them, those other people, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The seventh point in his case is this. God's wrath and judgment extend not only to sin-soaked prodigals, but also to self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical, older brother types. I think those of us who are raised in church like me, need to get this. The gospel is for party animal prodigals and for self-righteous, judgmental, older brother types. It's for both. Both need to return to the Father's house. Both need the gospel. Both need to be saved from their version of sin. And the wrath of God applies to both, and the love of God applies to both. All have sinned. We might have our own version. And so the verdict is in, in Paul's mind. He records his verdict in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? What's the verdict? Are we any better? I think he's talking to Jews. Are we Jews any better than them? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, not by nature, not apart from the gospel. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then this huge statement in chapter 3, verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. All mankind, number eight, stands before their creator totally guilty of sin. This is God's assessment of the world. All mankind has failed to glorify God as God. We all fall short. And he says, collectively, we got nothing to say in our defense. Nothing that would hold any water in the divine courtroom anyway. Although some people want to try. Because what happens to humans is that pride comes to the rescue. And ego comes to the rescue. And we see this kind of bad news assessment of who we are and where we stand with God. And and we go, well, but I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I... Pay my taxes. I am faithful to my spouse, at least in body. I help old ladies across the street when they need it. I'm a pretty good person. I'm certainly better than that guy down the street. And I think Paul would respond and say, well, okay. Have you for your entire life perfectly kept all of God's Ten Commandments? Have you glorified God with your life? Have you thanked your maker for every good thing you have in your life, including life itself? And maybe most importantly, could it be truly said of you that your life has made God look great? I mean, as people get to know you better and better, Susie and Bill and John and Tammy, as people get to know you better, do they go, man, God must be great. Let's be honest, none of us, no one, no human could could honestly say that, not by nature. And so before I ask you if you believe the good news, I must ask, I think Paul would ask, do you believe the bad news? Do you believe this? Paul would say, you know what, apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus Christ, we are doomed Our Creator could and should judge all of us guilty of a capital offense against Him and send us all to hell forever, and He would be totally just in doing so. That's God's assessment of humanity. That's what we deserve. So grasping that, maybe now, Paul would say, maybe now you're ready to really receive the good news and see it as really, really good. You see, I think we have no idea... ...how holy God is. And I also think we have no idea how much God loves us. And his love is revealed in the gospel. You see, now it becomes the now even better good news. Read it aloud with me from Romans 3. Here's the gospel, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known... ...to which the law and the prophets testify... This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I think Paul would say, please ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand this. Your eternal destiny rests on it. Six things are mentioned here. I'll walk through them briefly. Number one, God has made a right standing with him possible through the marvelous plan of the gospel. He didn't have to. He could have left mankind in in its condemned condition. But he has made a plan for a right standing with him. Number two, the gospel declares that a right standing with God cannot be earned by law keeping. By trying to be good, by trying to be better, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn this thing. There's something in us human beings that wants to think, well, I know I got something to offer God. I mean, it's only received by faith. Third, this right standing is the result of being justified by God. That's a term that Paul uses a lot in Romans, justified, justified. It's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous. Or maybe you've heard it explained this way, justified means God views me just as if I'd, just as if I'd never sinned, justified. And it's offered freely as a grace gift to all with no distinction. Prodigals, older brothers, male, female, young, old, black, white. The offer is to all. That's the gospel. That's good news. Number four, this justification was purchased potentially for everyone by Jesus. Number five, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross allows God to justify sinners while still remaining just himself. This is theology. The cross of Jesus Christ Because God poured out all his wrath, all his judgment on sin in the body of his own son on that cross. Now he can still be just and justify those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Have you grasped that truth? You would not want a God who just turns the other way from sin. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I didn't see that. I'll just look the other way. You would not respect a God like that. He cannot be true to himself and not punish sin. He has to punish sin and rebellion. But he chose to do it in the body of his own son on a cross 2,000 years ago. And now people who bend their knee at that cross and put their faith in Jesus are justified as a gift. Amazing. Number six, God now justly justifies all who have true faith in his son Jesus. That is good news. No, that's great news. That's great news. To reiterate what I said last week, the gospel message has a focal point, the cross of Christ. Because of what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago, the righteous wrath of a holy God was totally absorbed in the body of Jesus. And the debt owed to God for our sins and transgressions has been paid, and now God can justify those who believe the gospel, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, in the age of the Internet, we can, uh, we can now reconnect with people from our past. How many of you have, have re-hooked up with someone from way back that you met on the Internet? Okay. This happened to me recently. I uh, had a tennis buddy way back, 30 years ago. I grew up in Southern California. I played tennis. Back then, everybody played tennis. And uh, this guy was the number one player on our tennis team, and he was actually one of the best tennis players in all of Southern California, which was saying something. He was flat out good. And uh, not only that, he was a 4.0 student, very smart guy. He dated you know, a very beautiful young lady who was also a 4.0 student. Charles was his name. He grew up on the right side of town. He grew up in the most prestigious neighborhood in our city. Grew up with a tennis court in his backyard, for crying out loud. No wonder he was good. Dad was a tennis instructor, and we became friends, not real, real close friends, but friends, and played a lot of tennis together, and then we graduated from high school, and kind of said goodbye, and I went my way, and he went his way, and all these years, in the back of my mind, I've always wondered, I wonder what happened to Charles, this guy who was given every advantage, you know, humanly speaking, I wonder what, how his life turned out, and so I put out, not too long ago, a little feeler out there, you know, you Google somebody's name and see what comes up, and... I found his name and he was in Kenya and so I wrote him and I said Charles is this you the guy who graduated from Rigetti High School in 1978 and played tennis is the same guy and he wrote back and said yeah it's me And I said well tell me your tell me your story and he said "Uh, my story is one of encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ and being changed I'm like talk to me (laughs) talk to me man he said, well, I graduated from, from high school and went to uh, UC Davis up in Northern California at State University. He said, you know, with wind in my sails flying high, I figured I was God's gift to, you know, mankind. And he said, I studied my brains out my whole first year, and I couldn't do any better than a C-minus average. He said, I couldn't even make the varsity tennis team, so I played junior varsity. He said, as a junior varsity player, I lost every match that whole year. And so he said, I went back home that summer just totally disillusioned. You know, the things that he built his life on and, and that made him feel good about himself seemed to be being stripped away. And then that summer he thought, you know, I know what I'm missing, a woman. I need women in my life. And so he said, I went back to school for my second year, kind of pushed my studies and tennis aside, and I went whole hog into the, into the scene, you know, trying to find a girl. And he said, I went through one, two, three, the fourth Girl I hooked up with, he said, that, I thought she was it. I thought this was the one I'm going to spend my life with. And she, he said, the week before school let out, she wrote me a note and said, Charles, I don't love you. I've never loved you and walked out of his life. He said, I went home that summer with every intent of killing myself. At home, in his room, one day, ready to do it, parents not around. He remembered that in his stuff, he had a Bible that a couple of inner varsity students had given him at UC Davis. And he was an atheist. Charles was an atheist. He said, I didn't believe in God. Never talked to God. Never gave him much thought. He said, But I'm about ready to take my life in despair and despondency and disillusionment. So I pulled out this Bible and I said, Okay, God, if you're out there, you better talk to me. Because if you don't, this is the last conversation that I'm going to have on this earth. And he opened the Bible. You know how the Holy Spirit can make it open, you know, to the right place. And he read about Jesus Christ. He read about the gospel of Jesus. And something captivated Charles. And he said, Steve, I just... He said, that was it. Jesus spoke to me. So I went back to UC Davis that fall. I hooked up with those InterVarsity guys. I just asked them, what are you you guys all about? (laughs) And they told me about Jesus and the gospel. And they took me to a church. And I I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I started diving into the word of God and fellowshipping with Christians. He said, I'm in Kenya now. I'm a, I'm a missionary. This guy, he's in the bush in Kenya, discipling Kenyan men, planting churches, appointing elders and deacons. And he just built an orphanage for 106 little Kenyan children who've lost their parents through AIDS. And I'm like, no way. You are the most unlikely guy I would have ever thought to have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, and embraced the gospel, and had your life changed by Jesus. And you're doing that? And we've reconnected now around, not our tennis exploits, but around Jesus. It's like the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Even a proud, self-focused, high-achieving, high school, college student who didn't even believe in God. And God met him at his point of need. And transformed his life through the dino power of the gospel. Paul believed in the power of the gospel. I believe in the power of the gospel. Many of you believe in the power of the gospel. You know our memory verse for this week. A new one for you. 1 Corinthians 1.18. I love the way it says it. It's there on your outline. Would you read it out loud with me? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One more time. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Would you bow your heads with me? The gospel is the power of God. Paul said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I will not boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. And We're going to take these next few moments, and as a body of believers here, the 11 a.m. Congregation of New Life, we're going to come to the table, the Lord's table this morning. I want to ask you to do this. If you bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and would you picture in your mind's eye a cross standing on a hillside, rugged terrain, There's a man hanging on this cross, pierced, literally stapled to the wood. And he's in agony. You can see that. He's got a crown of thorns thorns pressed on his forehead. Blood is streaming down his face. His body has blood stripes all over it. He barely looks human. Blood is streaming down. Running down the wood beam to the ground. And you're there in your mind. You're looking at that cross and you're saying, That blood was the purchase price for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Church, let's get that today. His body was crushed, beaten to a pulp. His blood was spilled out, poured out. You have no idea how much he loves you. The cross is the demonstration, not only of the holiness of God, that his wrath needed to be satisfied, but of the love of God. He so wanted a relationship with human beings, he made the ultimate sacrifice.